Well, thank you, Trevor, and our worship team. <clears throat> Great music this morning. I love that we sing songs and we worship in, in a way that is rich theologically, that when we gather together, uh, our goal is to make much of our time, to, to monopolize our time and use it for the Lord's glory. And so to do that, we sing songs that cause us, force us to think deeply about who God is. And I don't know about you, but on Sunday mornings when we're singing, I catch, uh, I, I catch parts of each song, like something will just stick out in my mind, and I kind of just reflect on that as I'm singing. And one of the lines in uh, a song or two before we just finished was um, the, the, the line about God never being defeated stood out to me. And I thought about that as we're continuing to sing, that our God is never defeated. He remains undefeated. And, and I reflected back on yesterday morning, or yesterday afternoon, I should say. I'm watching SEC baseball tournament, and many of you know I'm a diehard Arkansas Razorback. I mean, if it's got a Razorback involved, I am pulling for them to win, even if it's like water polo or something. I, I want the Razorbacks to always be victorious. And, and so Arkansas has notoriously had a, a top five baseball program year in and year out, and so it's like always our year, and yet it's never our year to win the national championships. Like, to be an Arkansas Razorback is to live um, disappointed, Right? And so I'm, you know, we're coming in. We're number two C. We're co-champions of the uh, of the conference this year, and and we're playing Texas A and M again for the fifth times. And we ended up losing five four, which means we came back to make it a game at the top of the ninth inning. And it was a little bit of a letdown. I'm thinking, well, it's okay. It's not the tournament, so it really doesn't matter. Next weekend's what really matters in the baseball season. And then I noticed that in the evening, Florida, who was also the co-champion, lost. And so neither one of the top two seeds are in the championship this afternoon. And, and so I started thinking about that real quickly. It's like, man, as an Arkansas Razorback, we are defeated a lot. And it happens in all sports. Like if you're an NFL fan, what is it? The 72 Steelers are the only team to ever go undefeated. And yet we can't really... Dolphins? I'm sorry. I was thinking, yeah, Bradshaw and the Steelers... <laughs> So that's the one claim to fame that you Dolphin fans have, and you want to hold to that. I understand. So it's the Dolphins of the 72 Dolphins that were undefeated. And yet you can't really quantify that to today because they only played a certain amount of games. Now they're playing like 17 games in a regular season, so it's not really the same. Would they be undefeated if they had the same, uh, or the same schedule, length of schedule that we had today? And so what we come to find out is everything in life has a defeat at one time or another, and yet our God. Is never defeated. And that's the precursor to a real sermon coming up. So grab your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. I just love how we sing songs that cause us to think deeply about the Lord and to enjoy Him and to relish in His goodness and His glory. Luke chapter 12, where we're going to be this morning, as we continue walking through the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to think about this. Solomon said in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins, where knowledge is gained. And you know, we think about that, if we were to look back at what was experienced during COVID just a, a, a few years ago, we would discover, in my humble opinion, that fear marked much of what we experienced. Fear marked much of what we did during those months, if not years. Regardless of how you might feel about COVID or how it was handled or perhaps in your world mishandled, 
The entire experience, in my opinion, exposed the fear that humans have. The, the level, the depth of fear that we have. Reminded us that our lives, think about this, are finite. That they're fleeting. That they're frightening. That there are things in our lives that literally frighten us. And so the reminder was not all bad because we need a good dose from time to time to, to bring us back to reality, to help us understand what life is like and the dangers there, to ground us in essence. So the problem then was, was that it, it, it caused us to pull in. It, it caused us, our fears caused us to build walls and to shut others out in an attempt to protect and preserve. And so we might have engaged in that. We definitely saw that over the season of COVID just a couple years ago. When you think about fear, what does fear do? Fear causes us to look within rather than looking up and to look out. Fear will cause you to pull things closely. I mean, right now, in our economy and the way things are shaking out, what we're, what we're doing, many of us, is we're pulling in. Now, Part of that's being shrewd, right? You don't want to be overextended in a, in a financial, uh, turbulent situation. You want to be shrewd in that, so you want to pull in a little bit, but should we pull in completely and no longer do certain things that we should be doing? Fear leads us to pull in rather than causing us to look up and to look out. Here's a statement I came across this week. Fear is the dark room where negatives are developed. Think about that. Fear causes us and leads us to think negatively about things. Is this not what has played out over the last few years? I mean, think about the negatives that have not just been created, but they've been heightened. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've seen a rise, not just a rise, a skyrocketing of substance abuse. We've seen a skyrocketing of suicide in our culture, in our country even in our own community. Is there a correlation here? I believe there is. I, I can't help but think that there's a direct connection between these two things, our, our fear, our unhealthy fear, and it leading to negative, destructive behaviors within our society. Now, if you notice, I said unhealthy fear. Here's a question for you. Is there a difference between healthy fear and unhealthy fear? Can there be a, a dichotomy in this idea of fear? Can we have healthy fear? If so, what is it? And, and can we have unhealthy fear? And if so, what is that? Can these things be categorized? I believe they can and we should categorize them. Here's an example. Fire is powerful, right? We all can recognize the power of fire. Fire can consume, fire can destroy, and yet fire also has the power to propel. Fire has power that when we have it under control, we can see the usefulness of it. And you guys got here this morning, not because you put on raincoats and held umbrellas and walked to the church building. No, you got in a vehicle, most likely a gas-powered vehicle, and what's happening inside that engine? Any small engine shop students in here? A fire is going on. The fire is combusting and it's creating uh, energy that's propelling the wheels of your vehicle. And so fire is powerful, it's useful, and yet it's also destructive and dangerous. 
And so a fire is left unchecked. What happens? It burns entire forests down and everything in its path. And yet, if we can control it, it can be extremely useful. So we warn our children, don't touch the hot stove because it's dangerous. But we tell our children, get in the car and let's go to school. Why? Because the fire there is powerful, it's propelling, and it's obviously useful. So we have a healthy fear of fire and we have an unhealthy fear of fire. Unhealthy fear of fire would leave us stranded, cold, and hungry. We'd say we can't get into the car because there's a fire burning inside the engine compartment. That, that would leave us stranded. That, that would leave us cold in our homes. That would leave us hungry because we've never cooked food on an open fire. And yet, if we have a healthy fear of fire, it will keep us warm, it will keep us dry, it will keep us moving, it will also keep us in awe of the one who created that fire. God himself is described in the Bible as a consuming fire. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to call our attention to what healthy fear looks like when it comes to our relationship with God. Remember what Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of what it means to know God and to walk in the wisdom of God. So standing in awe of God and respecting his raw power and his raw authority, that's the foundation upon which everything else in our life ought to be built. This perspective will enable us to face all of the challenges and all of the dangers of life without fear. Hopefully many of us this last season that we call COVID were able to make it, make it through healthily because we had a proper perspective of God and his power and his authority and, and his prominence in our lives. And so we were able to face challenges and the unknown because we weren't pulling within, pulling into our lives, but we were continuing to look up and to look out. Richard Halverson said this, men who fear God face life fearlessly. Men who do not fear God end up fearing everything. Know any fearful people in your lives? Are you fearful today? Look with me in Luke chapter 12. We're actually going to begin reading in verse 53 of the previous chapter. We're going to kind of cover those last few verses from last week's passage and lead in to the first seven verses of chapter 12. And so look with me and let's begin reading. It says, as he, that's Jesus, went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. The Lord's disciples 
may not have realized it, but they were in danger. As we move into chapter 12, obviously the end of chapter 11 is telling us that as Jesus continues to preach and to minister and to cast out demons and and perform miracles, they began more and more to see him as this threat that they had to put down. And so they're trying to catch him up or catch him in a trap. They've already tried that. The passage we were looking at last week, we saw how they're trying to trip him up. They're trying to talk him into a situation where they can destroy him. Destroy him publicly, destroy him public, uh, politically, destroy him uh, from a testimony standpoint. They're looking for any and every opportunity to take Jesus down. And, and so that's what we come into, or what we see as we come into chapter 12. And so these disciples are in great danger. For one thing, they're surrounded by these crowds. Luke tells us that the crowds are gaining uh, such momentum that they're gathering by the thousands. And when they gather, they're so tightly packed that people are beginning to be trampled. And so as a, as a ministry, as a, as a public speaker, as one who's following this great teacher, this would have been a, a great temptation for them because there's a movement happening. And when you're a part of a movement, you want to be uh, drawn to that more and more and you want the crowds to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so that could, could have been a strong temptation for them. On the other end, because these religious leaders are attempting, and very shrewdly attempting to bring Jesus down, there's the threat of danger coming to them. And so they were facing the temptation of either playing to the crowds or playing down to the Pharisees so that they are not caught up in the danger that is awaiting Jesus. And so as we think about this, the snare of popularity and the fear of man has brought ruin to many people of God over the years. Here in this 12th chapter, we find five warnings. Four of them uh, must be heeded by God's people. Uh, The fifth warning needs to be heeded by a lost world if they're going to be redeemed. And this morning and, Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to deal with this first warning, the warning of hypocrisy. And I wanted to speak to the issue this morning of what it means to have a healthy sense of fear. So Luke tells us that as the crowds were increasing around Jesus, Jesus does something that is a little odd to me. Rather than going out to the crowds and spending all of his time with the crowds, which we might expect, Jesus pulls his disciples closer. And Jesus begins to speak to them directly and intentionally. He begins to focus on them rather than simply on the crowds. And so he pulls them together for a time of teaching, for a time of warning against the hypocrisy, warning against the Pharisees' teaching. And he mentions that these Pharisees and those religious leaders are hypocrites, that they're full of hypocrisy. Now, what is hypocrisy? We use this word a lot, but what does it mean from a biblical standpoint? Well, first of all, it was the greatest critique that Jesus gave to these religious leaders. That was the one thing that, that uh, he spoke against the most was their hypocrisy. The Greek term that is translated here for us in, in English is the word that, that means actor. It means to play a part. And so one who is a hypocrite or one who's engaged in hypocrisy is claiming one thing about their lives, and yet they're actually something very different. They're wearing a face. They're wearing a mask. They're, they're wearing a, a, a perspective that is saying one thing, and yet inwardly there's something altogether different. And so when we think about hypocrisy, here's a good way to, just, to define it. 
its moral inconsistency in one's life. Now, are there hypocrites in every aspect of human life? Absolutely. Uh, This morning, are we on some level hypocritical today? Yeah. Anybody perfect? Raise your hands this morning if you just got it all figured out and you live 100% for Jesus and, and, and everything, every little, every little word in the Bible you perfectly live out. Does anybody do that? No. But do you claim to believe the Bible? Do you claim to obey God? So someone would look at your life and say, you say you believe the Bible, you say you live by the Bible, and yet they can point out discrepancies in the track record, and so they might and probably would call you a hypocrite. And so, so on, on some level, we're all hypocrites because we can't fully live that out. But hopefully we're not saying, I'm a Christian, but inwardly saying, I have no desire to live as a Christian. That's really where the Pharisees were. So the Christian life, in the Christian life, a hypocrite is someone who... He's trying to appear more spiritual than he or she really is. There's a beautiful picture. That's probably the wrong perspective, wrong description. But if you were to go to Acts 5 this morning, we have time to go there. But in Acts chapter 5, we see a really strong picture of what hypocritical living looks like in the church. you got two people there, a man and a wife, a husband and a wife, Ananias and Sapphira. And they want to appear before the church as being very deep spiritual people, very generous in their giving. And so they sold a piece of property, which was fine. And they gave a gift to the church, which was fine. In fact, Peter even says that. But what they did that was not fine was they said, or they gave the impression, we gave it all to the Lord, and yet they held back some for themselves. So they were claiming to be spiritual, and yet they were not walking that out in their lives. And Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, calls it what it is, Judgment is laid out, not by Peter's hand, but by the Lord. Man, can you imagine if God was working like that when we took up the offering every Sunday morning? How many of you would be drug out of here every Sunday morning? Not kicking and screaming, but ten toes up. I I think about that sometimes. Thank you, Lord, for not doing that anymore, or at least you've put it on pause for a season. We read this text here. It makes sense that the Lord would warn his disciples of the dangers of hypocrisy at this time. You think about it, as more and more people are gathering to uh, Jesus and coming out to hear him and to see him, uh, these people might have been tempted. These men might have been tempted to give in to the popularity or give in to avoid the trouble uh, coming against them from the religious leaders. Every one of us want to be accepted. and These men would have been no different. All of us want to be liked. And so today it's easy for us, and it was easy for them, to fall into the trap of playing to the particular part others want to see. According to Jesus, what we see here is an unhealthy fear of man is dangerous and destructive to our lives. And yet, if we will possess a holy fear of God, that's the healthiest thing that we can ever grab a hold of in our lives. Last Sunday, we said it this way. The problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. And so what's the problem of the heart here? Misplaced fear. Misplaced fear. The disciples were in this predicament where they could have feared what others say more than they feared Jesus, their master himself. 
or they could have feared what might come against them from the Pharisees and the scribes rather than fearing Jesus himself. And so this morning, I want to just give you four things about healthy fear and what that ought to look like as we think about our relationship with the Lord. Here's the first thing. Healthy fear acknowledges that God knows all. We need to be reminded that God knows all things. If you look there in verse 2, we see there that Jesus makes it very clear that whatever is covered up is going to be unveiled. Everything is going to be known or is known. Ultimately, what we're to discern here from the words of Jesus is that God knows everything that is done. Everything that is, happens on this earth. Everything that happens in your life. God knows every bit of it. It reminds us of going all the way back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You remember the story there. God told Adam in chapter 2, verse 17, everything is for you except for one thing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it. The day you eat of it, you will die. And so Adam says, Lord, thank you for that. I appreciate the bountiful gift of the, of the garden. It's all for my good. You've told me out of your grace and of your mercy not to eat from that tree. Thank you for that. And so they move on. We move to chapter 3, and the serpent tempts them. And so they're now in this predicament. Will we fear God and what he said, or will we fear what we might be missing out. Will we believe the serpent's lie or will we believe what God has told us? And so we know the story, you know the story. They ate from that tree, everything changed, and God comes walking to the garden. Now, what did Adam and do prior to that? They got their sewing kit out, they grabbed some leaves. They began to make some bikinis. I don't know what they made. They made loin coverings and stuff. You know, it's always pictured like that. We don't know. The Bible says loin coverings. So they tried to hide themselves. They tried to hide the shame, tried to hide their nakedness. And when God does come walking, they're hiding in the bushes. They're doing exactly what all of us have done multiple times in our life. When we did something we didn't want to get caught doing, we hide. And we act like everything's okay. Can you imagine them? Every time God's walked in the garden before this, they have no clothing on. But on this particular day, as they come walking out, there's something starkly different about them. You don't think God's going to notice that? How stupid are these people? They're as stupid as we are. Because we think that we can get away with that. Jesus here is reminding us, God knows everything that we do. God knows your thoughts. God knows your action. God knows your, knows your intentions. He knows what you're going to do in the next three seconds and in the next 30 years. He knows it all. God knows everything about our lives and what we're going to do or what we should have done. So Adam and Eve hoped the Lord wouldn't notice the consequences of their decision. But what they failed to realize and what they failed to acknowledge was that their decision had changed everything about them. Everything in their lives was changed immediately when they bit into that fruit. And God knew it. Why? Because he knows and sees everything. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds. Over and over again in the Bible, we see this picture of God knowing and seeing all things. God knows it all. 
And so when we think about fear in our life, fear it can be destructive or fear can be constructive. It de- it's determined by what our fear is seated in. If we have a healthy fear, that fear is rooted and seated in the person and the presence and the power of God. And we understand God knows it all, everything that we're going to do. An unhealthy fear has our eyes on ourselves, on other things. Therefore, we are constantly trying to hold on to the chaos in our life and to make it ordered. The Pharisees in this passage, really the Gospels themselves, had elaborate piety built into their daily lives, and all of that served for one purpose, to be a veneer that overshadowed the sinful contaminated, and as we saw last Sunday, infectious souls that they possessed. They didn't know God. They didn't believe God, and they didn't serve God. They simply acted and played the part. See, they deceived themselves into believing that God did not know the wickedness of their hearts, but Jesus knew their spiritual condition. That was what we saw last Sunday. He knows what they were saying. He knows what they were doing, and he spoke to it. In each situation, he cannot be deceived because he sees through our masquerade. This morning, many of us, if not all of us, have some sort of masquerade on our lives. We give the impression we are this, but we're not all that. We fool each other. Yeah, I've joked with you many times on a Sunday morning. How many of us, thankfully, I this morning came by myself, but I usually have kids. So it happens to me too. We're fighting all the way to church. And you step on the parking lot, you open the door, the biggest smile comes on your face. Hey, brother, how are you doing? How's this week? Wonderful. The Lord's blessed us. But you just were, you were the devil to each other all the way to church. But you get out, you walk into the church building, and everything's wonderful and fine until you go home. What, what are you doing in that point? Playing a game. You're playing a game. So we all do it. And God knows it. Second thing, i got to hurry here this morning. I have a shorter sermon, but it's not looking that way. Second thing about healthy fear, it recognizes that God exposes all. So God's knowledge of our hidden sin leads him, verse 2 and 3, to expose it. And we go back to the garden. There in Eden, Adam and Eve's sin was a conscious rebellion against his command. Don't eat of that tree. When you do, you will die, God said. God calls it out in chapter 3. We would expect, you know, as we read through Genesis 3, we would expect to see God's wrath coming. Because he said, when you eat of this fruit, you will die. We would expect that to immediately happen. And spiritually, yes, they did die. How do we know that? They're hiding. They're running. They're covering up. There's something starkly and significantly different in their relationship with the Father. Now they are, at best, walking at a guilty distance. But they're spiritually dead, spiritually cut off. But everything else is also changed. And so we would expect God's wrath to be poured out there, and it would be just for him to do so. But what we see is grace, and we see mercy. We see God moving toward them, pursuing Adam and Eve. All the while, they're running and hiding and covering up and blaming and and doing all of those things, even blaming God himself. But what does God do in this? In grace, in mercy, he asks questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I told you not to eat? Convicting questions, right? 
convicting. What, what is God doing here? He's proving that he knows. Is he asking questions because he don't knows, doesn't know the answer? No. He knows the answer. That's why he's walking in the garden. He's asking the questions because in grace and mercy, he's coming about it in a way to expose the sin that has been committed. Where are you? Leads the people to believe or to understand and to recognize, I'm not where I should be. They should have been like your dog is and my dog is when you come home, running to meet him. But instead, they're in the bushes hiding and covering up. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? You didn't know that yesterday. How do you know? Why is there this difference in your life? So don't get caught, as I always say this, don't get caught on whether or not they have clothes on or not. That's not the issue. The issue is the shame that they now feel, which is personified by them seeing that they have nakedness in their lives, that they are not covered up. So we ask these questions meant to expose their sin, and then they begin to blame game. Eve's blaming the serpent, Adam's blaming Eve, and then God because he gave her to him. And so this blame game goes on, and yet God in his grace continues to expose and to show them for who they are, that is, fallen and in need of forgiveness. Healthy fear recognizes that God will expose all. We should live with that understanding that God knows what I'm doing, and at some point, God will expose what I'm doing. It's the discipline of the Lord. You see, when God, as a loving Father, exposes our sin, He does it for our own good. As a Christian, we need to remember that. That ought to lead us and drive us not to hold on to sin, not to play with sin, knowing that it plays for keeps on its end, but also knowing God knows and sees all that we're doing. And in his love and in his mercy and in his grace, he will bring it out in our lives. He'll expose it. Many of us can give testimony to his grace from that standpoint. So that ought to be a fear that, that recognizes God will expose that in our lives. What hypocrisy does is it leads us to believe that the real you will never be found out. That, it'll, God, or that you'll take it to the grave. What, what do we know about the grave? Look what he says, verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. God sees it. Verse 3. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in the housetops. So you may take the sin that you're holding on to the, to the grave, thinking that you've won. But even beyond the grave, it will be exposed. He goes on to say in latter verses, don't fear him who can kill. Fear him who can kill and then cast into hell. That's telling us that there's something that comes after death. So you will stand and give an account for the life that you've lived, what you've done with the gospel, and how you've lived your life. God will never allow any of us to get off and to live the lie. There's a third thing that I want you to see here. Healthy fear yields to God as judge of all. God's knowing and exposing of man's sin highlights this role as a judge meaning we're ultimately answerable to him for the decisions and the actions that we make in life. Now, we're answerable and accountable to others for those decisions and those actions, but ultimately, we have one judge that will judge us in true fairness and in true justice. Adam and Eve chose to disobey the command in Eden. Who did they answer to God about it for? Who did they answer for it before? It was God himself. 
We read in Revelation that everyone will one day stand before God. They're going to give an account of their lives, right? Here, here's some good news this morning. Even the serpent that was in the garden will give an account for that. Satan himself will one day stand before God at the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20, after he has been cast into the abyss, he will be brought back out, lead a rebellion, and then he will be judged for all of eternity. He will be in the lake of fire. He will be judged for his rebellion against God. The demons of hell will stand before the God and be judged because they have rebelled against God. So if they're judged, don't you think we're going to be judged as well? Absolutely. God is our judge. All of us will give an account. So no one will escape the sin that we commit in this life. But for us who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, praise God, we've already been judged. Our judgment took place on the cross. Our judgment took place as Jesus stretched out his arms and he became what the Bible calls our propitiation. He became our payment for sin. His blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. You see, the Father's wrath was exhausted against the Son so that we could be forgiven. But also, while we may be forgiven positionally, made righteous before God, we still will give an account before the Lord. At that great right throne, the Bible tells us in Revelation 20 that all people outside of the Lord Jesus Christ will be marched in before the Lord and will be judged by what's written in the books. For those of us who know the Lord, we'll be judged by what's written in one book, the book of life. There's a different category there. But all of us will give an account. So what does that tell us? God is judge. And for us, we need to have a healthy fear of God because he judges all people. There's a fourth thing that I want you to see. Healthy fear rests in God's value of all. This morning, you may need some encouragement in how you look at yourself or or how you think about yourself, maybe how what you perceive others think about you. Here's something you need to know. God loves you. God loves you. You're extremely valuable to him. We see that laid out here in the word picture that Jesus gives us in, in verses 5 and 6. He talks about sparrows. And he says that uh, these sparrows, you can buy five of them for two pennies. And, and so that's something very insignificant. I mean, five birds, two pennies. Even if it's in American uh, currency today, I mean, what are two pennies? You can't even buy, you can't buy anything with two pennies in American currency today. I remember a day where you could go down when I was a kid to the local gas station and you could get like some gum for five cents. So, you know, if you're like me, you're scraping up nickels all the time to, to walk down to the convenience store to get some gum. A pack of gum for five cents. That was like a lot of money. You can't get anything for a penny. You can't get anything for a nickel. Do they even have those little machines at the restaurants anymore where you could put a quarter in there and get a little rubber ball or like a, a little ring that would turn your finger green? They, they even have those? Or are they $5 now? I, I don't know. But the point here is, hey, here's some sparrows. You can get five of them for two pennies. So we would look at that and think, they ain't worth much, right? We don't even think about sparrows. They're just the little birds that come and eat the crumbs that we're sitting outside at at an outdoor cafe. That's what we think about sparrows. They're insignificant to us. But what does Jesus say? God values them. God takes care of them. God meets their needs. God knows what's going on in their lives. That's the idea that he's given here. 
And so he's making the point that if God cares for those insignificant, valueless sparrows, then surely he values you. Why? Because you're made in the image and the likeness of God. You, you bear something of the divine in your creation. So every single person on the face of the earth has intrinsic value, not because of a color of your skin or the level of education you have or the amount of money you have in your bank account or what your last name is or what side of the tracks you were born and raised on. None of that matters to God. What God sees in you is himself, the image of God that's in your life. That's what makes you valuable. So as we as Christians look at things that we deal with in our culture today, why we are so strong against like abortion and stuff, it's not because we want to inhibit somebody's freedom. No, it's because we understand what life is. Life for the human being has intrinsic value because of God's image that's in that life. And so if God cares for sparrows who are such insignificant, valueless creatures on the face of the earth, how much more does he care about you and I? So as we understand who God is and how powerful he is and how wonderful he is, man, it ought to lead us to rest in God's value over us. Healthy fear rests in this understanding of God's value over our lives. Healthy fear doesn't fear the opinions of our friends or our foes. Healthy fear is not concerned with cultural compromise. Healthy fear instead believes what God's word says about this intrinsic value placed upon humanity. It believes that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we're made in the image and the likeness of God. It remembers the great cost that God underwent to pay to purchase our redemption. God ultimately exposed our sin. Think about this, by nailing it to the cross, slaying his son in our place. If that doesn't prove the value he places over your life, nothing else can. Healthy fear leads us to rest in him. This morning, you may struggle with fear in your life. I'm, I'm struggling here myself because I, I can get, you, you, those of you who know me well, you know the last few years have been a struggle for me. You know, just looking at what's happening in our culture. So I don't want to be critical, but I look out and I see elements in our society today and I just see fear on people's lives. Man, we should live fearless, not in the sense of haphazard living or, or, or we flippant living. We just don't care. None of those things, but just a calm assurance in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. There's nothing that will touch your life that God has not first signed off on. I just firmly believe that. My days are numbered because God numbers my days. What does Jesus tell us in this text here? He knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, it's getting easier for the Lord. <laughs> Kyle, what are you laughing at? You're with me too. I'll grow a beard. That way he can have some more hairs to, to count. So if the Lord knows the number of hairs on my head, surely he knows the number of days I've got live, to live on this earth. So there's nothing that's going to take me. That, that was one of the things that I wanted to push so hard against a couple years ago when, when so many people were scared about the unknown and will I die from this? Maybe, but you're going to die from something. And whatever that something is, the Lord signed off on it. Heart attack, car accident old age, right? Whatever that is. 
Now, again, I'm not saying live flippantly. I'm not saying be just crazy in your life. No, take good care of yourself, be healthy, exercise, eat right, do the normal things that you ought to do. Why? Because your Bible or your body, as the Bible tells us, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you want to take care of that temple, right? Don't do dumb things. But when it comes down to it, God is in control of every aspect of my life. And so today, what is your greatest fear? Sitting on the platform with the graduation Friday night or Thursday night at Powhatan's high school football field, listening to the valedictorian of the 2023 class, and he started out by talking about how uh, surveys have been done, research has been done, and, and almost in every one of those uh, type of research settings, the number one fear that comes back when that question is asked, what do, what do you fear the most? It's public speaking. And so it's surprising that that would surpass even the fear of death. Like That's like fifth, he said, on the list, whatever list he was looking at. Uh, but first was the fear of public speaking. Now, this morning, most of you in this room probably don't have to deal with that. Like You're never going to be up on a stage. You don't have opportunities to do that, so you don't have to worry about that fear. But you have a fear in your life. What is that fear? What is the fear that grips you? What is the fear that, that, that causes you to tremble and, and to lose control in your life? You might be today crippled by what others think about you. Today, you're living for the applause of men. Now, it's not open. It's, it's not out there for everybody to see, perhaps. But your self-esteem self is in some way driven by what others say about you on social media. How many likes you get or don't get? How many selfies you can take? I'm not trying to be mean this morning, but that's how we are, that's where we're moving as a culture if we're not already there, especially the younger generation. How destructive of a pattern for living is that? When your whole psyche, your whole self-esteem, your whole understanding of who you are, the value that you have is, is seated in what others say or don't say about you. We see epidemic levels of suicide all throughout our country and the younger generations because of this issue largely. So today, if your fear, your greatest fear is what others say about you, I want you to know it doesn't matter. Please hear me. It does not matter what others say about you. It only matters what God says about you. Only, say, only thing that matters. Last year, man, I need to hurry, but I just going to say this. Last spring, um, I, for a couple months, I had a lot of critics in our county. Uh, from the position I, I serve in outside of the church, and I just won a special election, and, and I, I literally I had people telling me that they were watching, listening to every sermon that I preach. So I'm telling them, like, bless God. And in my mind, I'm thinking, Lord, use this. Like, use this. Use this. This desire, almost like what's happening here in, in, in Luke 11, where they're looking, seeking to trip Jesus up, catch him in, in a predicament where they can just kind of pounce on him. I'm thinking, Lord, use their desire to catch me in something for their own benefit when it comes to the gospel. So this is what's happening. And I came back from Israel, and, and uh, I'm preaching, and I used a, uh, a phrase Literally, honestly, didn't even know that it was a racial slur. Didn't even know. Never thought a thing about it. And after the sermon, had a couple of people like, hey, Pastor, did you know you said that? I'm like, no, I really didn't even know I said that, but didn't know it was a big deal. A couple days later, boom, 
just pounced on me, pounced on me, demanding my resignation, demanding all these certain things. Man, I was fighting off Jewish Federation and different groups from Richmond, and I had all these conversations, and I'm livid, just livid. This is nothing but political garbage, right? And all of that, it would have been very easy to get caught up in the fear of what others think about me. But I didn't. Why? Because I know who I am. I know, first and foremost, how the Lord loves me, cares for me, how the Lord has spoken into my life, how he's called me to a certain thing. I, I know that I had no ill intentions there, but I could have easily given in to the, to the popular opinion and, and, and changed the course of action. I, I could do that in all things of, all areas of leadership that I have in this life. I could try to appeal to certain people within our community. We could kind of dumb down our doctrine in this church to be more palatable to them. But then what would, be, what would we be saying? We'd be saying, we fear the opinion of man over the opinion of God. And I will never do that by God's grace. And so what do you fear this morning? What is it that causes you to tremble? Acts chapter 4, I'm going to say this and we'll be done. We see this story of Peter and John. It starts in chapter 3. It says after Pentecost and God's just moving mightily through the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John are going to the temple to pray. And, and there's people who can't make a living that are outside the temple. And, and they live, they survive on the gifts, the generosity of the Jewish people as they're passing along. And Peter and John are passing along, and this guy's asking for alms. He's asking for a gift, and Peter says, I don't have anything to give you, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. God's healed. Miracle happens. People begin to walk, uh, gather around to see this miracle and, and gives them opportunity to preach the gospel, and that leads to them being arrested and thrown into jail by the, by the Jerusalem council and the Sanhedrin and all of that. And so the next day they're brought before them, and they're warned to never speak to never do anything in the name of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter and John said to them. Acts 4, verse 19 and 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. What was the motivation in Peter and John's life? The fear of God. doesn't matter what you say to me. It only matters what God has said to me. Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We need to have a healthy fear of God. It starts with a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. It continues as we know his word and live his word and abide in his word. As we gather with his people and the local church, as we continue to walk out this, this sanctification in our lives, that helps us to grow. And so today, you may have a fear in your life that hopefully tomorrow you're not going to have. Because you're in relationship with Jesus, you're in relationship with his people, you're under the teaching of his word, and you're walking that out in your life. That's what it means to have a healthy fear of God. Knowing he knows it. He exposes it, he judges it, but in all of that, he loves you. Man, you've got incredible value. Not because you have a last name that just makes people stand up at attention, right? It's because you have value in the life of God that's in you. Hope that encourages you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning it's... 
pretty common, if not common in all of our lives, that we wrestle with fear. Sometimes our fear is overt, it's out in the open, and everybody can see it. Other times it's really covert. And we keep it bottled up, tucked way back in the closet of our lives. But Father, Jesus reminds us here in these words that Luke recorded that you see it all. You hear our thoughts. You hear the things we say even when we're by ourselves. In a closed room, dark, lights are turned off. No one can see in. No one can hear what we're saying. And yet you hear it all. And you see it all. And in your grace, you expose it all. Father, I pray that we this morning would be encouraged in that. That we would have no desire to continue to walk and to live in hypocrisy. But Lord, allow ourselves to walk out into the light. So this morning, if there's a man, a woman, a teenager, a child this morning, that just their life is indicative of hypocrisy, God, give them the strength to walk out of that. To no longer live a dual life. But, Lord, may there be uh, a single focus, and that focus being on Jesus, and letting his life be pressed out through theirs. This morning in this room, maybe watching online, there's, there's people who need to give their life to Christ, and that's the greatest need in their life. And perhaps the greatest fear today is dying and what awaits them after death. Pray that you'd be able to calm that fear, dispense that fear, through what the Bible calls being born again. That they would come to the end of themselves. And Lord, through belief and faith in Jesus Christ, through the gospel, confess their sin and be transformed, having heaven awaiting them. For us as believers, Lord, may we just be open and honest and allow you to do work in our hearts. Whatever that may be this morning, as we move into a time of response on this Memorial Day weekend, you have us here for a reason. Lord, help us not to leave without experiencing that. We love you. We thank you so much for the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ that changes us. Amen. Would you- we trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.